You ready? Yeah. All right, good. Whew. All right, hour one, we'll take a break after that. No, I'm kidding. I'm so glad you guys are here today. Uh, I know we got a lot of people traveling, not just Israel folks, but other people traveling, doing stuff. Um, but I'm glad that you guys have been faithful to show up here today because it is an encouragement to me and you all are an encouragement to one another and hopefully to yourselves. And there's this whole thing about being here and doing what we do corporately together. There's a whole uh, thing that happens when we do that, that is encouraging, that's uplifting, that's edifying. We edify one another as the church. And so I'm glad to see you here this morning as we get into the word. Uh, it's not fair. That's a phrase I've used it many times for many reasons. My parents uh, love my brother Daniel and my sister Donna more than me. I was a middle child. It's not fair. Okay. The kid that I didn't think was as good as me at sports who got to play anyway because his dad and the coach were buddy-buddy, it's not fair. It's not fair, right? Now, neither of those things is true. My parents say they love us all the same. <laughs> my brother and sister both got a car. I didn't. So I, I'm, not, I'm just saying there's evidence that would suggest. It's not fair. Uh, and the other kid was a better athlete than me. That's why he got to play. But but you know what I'm saying. We say it's not fair, right? Sometimes when we don't get what we want, or when we do get what we don't want, we say it's not fair. We cry. It's not fair. Sometimes it's not fair. My parents used to reply to the accusation when us kids would say, it's not fair. They'd say, who said life was fair? You guys have heard that one before. Yeah. And there wasn't much I could say back to that. It's like, I guess nobody. Uh, and they're right. In this fallen world, life most certainly is not fair. It's not fair. But for me, the, the longer I've gone, the more I've realized that it's not fair to my benefit. To my benefit. I have so many things that I do not deserve. What I deserve for the things I've thought and done and said, all my sin, all my unrighteousness, is death. That's what I deserve. Instead, what I've received is all kinds of stuff. I've got clothes and food and a place to live. I have all of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, my family, my friends. I have good health, extremely good looks. <laughs> not supposed to laugh at that. <clears throat> I don't, it's not fair. I don't deserve uh, <laughs> any of that. I don't deserve any of those things, but really all those are just things I'm experiencing now kind of in the fallen world. What I really have is I have salvation. I have salvation. And I'm experiencing that. I've been saved from my sin. God has loved me. He's forgotten my sin. He's forgiven me. I have eternal life. And I have the Holy Spirit indwelling me. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I'm God's. I'm his child. I have the Holy Spirit indwelling me. Uh, the, the longer you are in Christ, the more you will realize and recognize what you have in the Holy Spirit. When you have to get through things that you cannot get through, and you know you cannot get through them, and you see the Holy Spirit empower you and, get through, and you get through them time after time after time after time. Great is your faithfulness, right? We just sang it. 
He's so faithful. I have so much. And it's not fair. It's grace. If I got what was fair, it would not be good for me. Salvation, however, is a tricky topic in the world. Because some people think that the whole idea of salvation isn't fair to their detriment instead of to their benefit. Some people think that God's judgment of the sinfulness of man is not fair. It's not fair. Some people think that God's judgment is wrong. They think they know better than God what is good. If you're a Christ follower, hopefully you don't think that. Hopefully you know you're a sinner in need of a savior. You know that you need the grace of God. But if you're not a Christ follower, this may be the very thing that is tripping you up. This may be the very thing that you're fighting with God about, the idea of judgment, the idea of hell, the idea that there's justice in your judgment. You might be saying, it's not fair. It's not fair for God to judge us, so the Bible can't be true because it says God judges and that's not fair. Or you might be saying, it's not fair, so the Bible doesn't really mean what it says it means, right? These objections to God's judgment are not new. Are not new. If you think they're novel and you're the first one to have thought of this, you're not. They have been leveled against God for thousands of years. And these objections were foreseen by the Holy Spirit as he inspired Paul to write the book of Romans. And we are in our 10th study in Romans today. And we're going to deal with the third section of what we have been calling the gospel argument. I'm just calling it the third section. There's not... It's not sectioned like that. Um, But this is the third section that we're getting into of the gospel argument. Okay, He's going to start dealing with perceived objections to the first two parts of the argument that have already been made. Now, if you did not study with us the last couple weeks, those studies are available on the website, on the app, on YouTube, most places where you would get a podcast. So go ahead and and watch those. We'll wait. No, I'm kidding. We're not going to wait for you. You have to watch them later. You have to watch them later. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there are Bibles in front of you in these seats. Please uh, take one home with you. If you don't have a Bible at home, that is our gift to you. We want you to have the Word of God in your home with you. Um, We love you. And the thing that we think we can do better than almost anything else we could do to show you love is to provide you with the Word of God. Because there, you know, you can go without a million things, but you cannot go without the Word of God. You need that. So take one of those if you need one. Uh, one of the things you should know about, just if you're new, one of the things you should know about the people who make up the body of Acts Church is that we believe the Bible is the Word of God. We do not believe that this is a book of legends and stories and a few moral platitudes that maybe we can live by if they happen to be the ones that we sort of like. And then if they're the ones that we don't sort of like, then we're like, oh, the Bible's on the wrong side of history or whatever. We don't, that's not how we do things here. Here at Acts Church, we believe that this is the Word of God. The word of God, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You, listen, if you do not have the word of God illuminating your feet and your path, you are walking in darkness. You may think that you're not, but you are. You may not always like this. You may not always understand it. That's why we spend hour after hour, week after week studying this, reading it on our own going through it so that we can understand it, so that we can know it. That's why we teach it here. That's what we're doing here. Because the Bible is truth and you need it. You need it. There's nothing else you get from the rest of this sermon today, the other four hours of it. Get that, okay? You need the word of God in your life. 
If you're a person who's thinking, well, you know, I, I believe some of it, I don't necessarily believe all of it, some of it's kind of weird, or some of it kind of goes against things that I, you know, would prefer to believe. Let me just tell you, we've dealt with all those objections. You can go back and watch kind of our skeptics type stuff we've dealt with, how we know this is the Bible, how we know it's the Word of God, those kinds of things. It has been around, I don't know if you know this, it's been around a really long time. So the Bible has been around a really long time, and there's still millions of people who will meet this morning, tonight, last night, throughout the week, and study the Word of God, believing it is the truth. Somehow it has lasted. And by the way, I don't think there is another book that has had as many objectors and critics as the Scripture. And it's withstood it all. It's withstood it all. Or Because if one of them had won, we would stop reading it. We would stop believing it. All these critics, nobody wins. You got to have your Bible, okay? So if you want to live by truth, read the Word of God. All right, grab your Bibles. We're going to get into it. Um, we can go ahead and pass out those. I'm going to pass out the, I've been passing out these arguments uh, where I've taken kind of what we're studying and put it into like an argument form. I don't know if, if these are useful to you guys, but I don't care. I'm giving them to you anyway. Um, someday as you're going back to the book of Romans or something, maybe they'll be useful to you. If not now, don't start reading them now because you're going to get ahead of me. Um, but these are for you. If you're online, the link is there for you to click onto that or to download it or to do however the computer stuff works. You, could, you guys can do that. All right. Let's pray as we get started. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for the strength that you give me in your Holy Spirit, for the strength that you give these people in your Holy Spirit. Lord, forgive our sins. Help us to forgive others. <laughs> forgive us our debts as we forgive those of others, Lord. That's a tough one. I pray that you help our hearts to be right so that we can hear from your word. Lord, help us to have humility before you, before your glory, before your honor, before your righteousness, before your peace, before your joy, before your goodness as we look in your scripture today, in your name, amen. All right, we're in chapter three. At the beginning of chapter three, we're gonna start with verse one. Roger's a little slow, I'll wait for him to finish passing those things. Just kidding. It's okay. All right, it says this, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Ugh. We're not going to talk a lot about circumcision and the prophet of circumcision today, um, at least not in those terms. Uh, so what's happened here is we've ended the first kind of two parts of the argument, okay? Let me run through what they were real quick if you missed. The first two parts of the argument were that the Gentiles are under judgment. Okay, and by the way, this argument part of it starts in verse 18 of chapter 1. Okay, the, the stuff before that sort of sets it up, but it starts in, in verse 18 of chapter 1. That the Gentiles are under judgment. The Gentiles is anybody who's not a Jew, Okay. And the wrath of God is upon them for their sinfulness and unrighteousness, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, doing all these things, the whole list of all the, what we'd call in the law, a parade of terribles, all these things that they've done that they ought not have done. Second, that the Gentiles have no excuse because they knew God both by what had been made by creation and he had written the law on their heart and their conscience told them what was right and wrong and they still did wrong and they had no excuse. Okay. That the Jewish people, this was the second part of the argument, that the Jewish people are under the same judgment because they had the law and the scriptures and they didn't follow the law either. 
and that the Jewish people have no excuse. So now what Paul's done is he's done this thing. And we talked about the Roman church, right? And you got the Jews and you got the Gentiles sort of together doing this thing. So Paul goes out and he says, the Gentiles, they're rotten. They're rotten, right? They're bad. And the Jewish people are like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, we've always thought that. You know, that's, they're Gentiles, you know, what are you going to do? And then he's like, okay, oh, by the way, you all, you're bad too. And they're like, hey, oh, hang on. When you're talking about them, I was okay with it. You start coming over here, I might want to find another church, right? I don't, I don't know if I like that. So he runs through and he basically says, look, you're in the same position as them. If you do good, good. If you do bad, bad. Just like them. The law is a judge of both of you. And so then he is, what he's doing here is he's uh, using a rhetorical device. Okay, And by a rhetorical device, I just mean this is the way he's sort of laying out his persuasive argument. He is assuming an objection from the listeners. Okay, The Holy Spirit's pretty smart. And he's like, Paul, this is what some of your readers of this, of this letter are going to think. So that's the question that comes out. Okay? The question is, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? In other words, if you're saying that we're just like the Gentiles, we've been spending all this time thinking we're better than them, what's the point? What's the advantage of being a Jew and of and talking about circumcision, I say, being the Jew and keeping the law, doing all these things, that we've been doing, going to the temple, doing the sacrifices. What's the advantage of that if we're in the same place as them under judgment? This is a difficult, I, I think, it's, it's hard for us, I think, because <coughs> we don't make these distinctions as much. But for them, the distinction between Jew and Gentile was pretty strong. And so having just been dressed down by Paul and shown they're going to be under judgment is very difficult to be to be put in the same category as Gentiles would have been extremely offensive, okay? This is like if you talk about Pac-12 fans and you talk about Husky fans and Ducks fans, <laughs> like they were just the same thing. That's offensive, okay? Just a new one for that's offensive? No, I'm kidding. It's not offensive. I don't care. Um, it, it was offensive to them, though, okay? Because the Gentiles did evil, vile things. As, as like a matter of course, their culture was extremely disgusting. And the Jewish people kind of prided themselves on the fact that they followed all these rules, or at least some of the rules, or at least they talked about following the rules, right? And so they, they had this idea that they were different. And now they're feeling like, oh, well, if we're both under judgment, the fact that we're God's chosen people doesn't mean anything. They're thinking, it's not fair. It's not fair. We're righteous. We keep the rules. We should be justified more than the Gentiles because we keep the rules. There should be a difference. But Paul answers, what's the difference, right? What's the difference or what's the advantage? And he says, well, much, much in every way. This is the second verse. Chiefly because to them, the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. So they're saying, what's the advantage? And Paul doesn't say, well, there's an advantage that you're not under the same judgment. You're not under as much judgment. He doesn't go into that. Instead, what he says is, regardless of the judgment thing, there are serious advantages to having been Israelites, to having been God's chosen people, because the oracles of God, firstly, the oracles of God were committed to you. That's this, the scriptures, the promises of God. The promises of God were given, committed to the Jewish people. 
They were the ones who had the scripture. It's not about being justified automatically. First of all, the Jews had the scripture so they knew that there was no automatic justification for being a Jew. God was, I can't imagine him being more clear than he was in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that sin equals death. That if you sin, there's judgment. So they knew that. So trying to sort of be like, well, we shouldn't be under as much judgment. That's something that had started to float up in their own pride. And Paul's saying, don't be proud about that. You're under the same judgment as the Gentiles. But there are advantages. Huge blessing, huge advantage. They had the scripture. I don't know how, where you are at in your life right now. But for me, if you take this away, if you take this away from me, I don't know that there's anything that would be worse to have taken away from me. This and the knowledge of this. If I did not know the promises of God, I could not go on. I could not face the things that have to be faced. But I know the promises of God. How do I know them? Because he's revealed them to me in scripture. They've had that. What an advantage. What a blessing that they had. Now, there are more blessings because, of course, it was through the Jewish people that the whole world, both Gentile and Jew, would find salvation. Later on, Paul's going to get deeper into this issue of the Jewish folks, the Israelites, and what God's plan is for them. We're kind of in chapter 9 and going through chapter 11. He's going to talk about that. But this is, this is what he says in chapter 9, just so you know some of the other advantages. Chapter 9, verses 4 through 5. Who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. A few advantages. There's some real benefits to having been God's chosen people, not the least of which is that they, there's glory that God has given to them in having the scripture and being the ones who, who were actually faithful sometimes, <laughs> to God, over time, who actually brought the scriptures down to us, and through whom, through the seed of Abraham, through the seed of David, Christ came to save not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too. The entire world would be saved by the flesh through the Jews. That Jesus came as a man and took on flesh as a Jewish man. Being Jewish was a great advantage. Christ was born through the flesh, or according to the flesh, through the Jews. However, what, he, what he's also saying impliedly is that their advantages do not keep them from judgment for their sin. Their advantages were that because they're under judgment, they could be saved because Christ came through them and they had the promise of the Messiah, which had been fulfilled at this time. Christ's death and resurrection. But that also the Gentiles could be saved by God. So what's the advantage? All, a whole lot just not that you're not under judgment. That doesn't work. You can't, you can't just sin away and say, I'm Jewish. It's not how it works. Next objection, Romans 3.3. 3. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Again, this is not Paul's question. This is not the Holy Spirit's question. The Holy Spirit doesn't have questions. He knows everything. This is the perceived question or the assumed question of some of his readers right? What about if some Jews don't believe? You just said we have the oracles, the promises of God, but what if, what if some of the Jews don't believe? Then does that make the faithfulness of God without effect? In other words, will those promises go away? Will God not keep his promises because we're unfaithful? 
This is extremely important. They've been told they're under judgment, so they're wondering if that means that God is going to be unfaithful in his covenant and his promises to the Jewish people. And Paul answers the, this argument in the next verse, verse 3, 4. Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. The answer is simple here. Absolutely not. When God promises, God performs. Period. Period. Every time, every promise, God performs his promises. God is faithful. This little, that you may be justified in your words, this is talking about God, that God, you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you're judged. This, this comes from a passage in Psalms. Okay? David has committed adultery. He's murdered a guy. He's under judgment. He's under punishment. He is writing Psalm 51. And he's kind of pouring his heart out to God. This is what he says in the fourth verse. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. David's saying, I'm under your judgment for what I've done, and it is fair. It is just. You are just. Who cares what men do? God is faithful. Who cares how men think about justice? God is just. That's what's going on here. David's saying that God's truthful in his judgment, even though he was being punished for his sin. In fact, his son died. There was a lot of bad stuff that went down, but David found God blameless in his judgment. You have to remember that God's covenant with the Israelites had conditions. It wasn't, I will do all of this no matter what you do or how you do it. Whether you honor me or worship idols, whether you do any of this, that's not what he said. He said, be faithful and I will be faithful. That's what he said. He did not promise there would be no judgment for sin. Okay? He did promise some things that were going to happen no matter what, like that the Christ would come through the line of David, regardless of what David's uh, children and children's children, children's children, children did. The Messiah still came because that was an irrevocable promise. God has irrevocable promises and he always keeps them. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, came through the seed of David just as he promised. Christ died on the cross and rose again just as he promised in the scriptures. The Jewish people can be saved through Jesus, the Messiah, just as he promised. And God is not done with the Israelites. God is not done with the Jewish people. There's this uh, theology idea, theological idea out there called replacement theology. And what it basically says is that, look, once Christ came, the church replaced God's chosen people, Israel. And now all the promises pertain to the church, all the things that he says about Israel, they're all about the church. That, you, that cannot be held up if you read the book of Romans. Okay? It's not true. God still has work left to do with his chosen people. He's brought them back to the land. And in the end, he will draw them back to himself. He still loves and cares for and keeps his covenant with the Jewish people, even when they're unfaithful, just as he promised. God will most definitely fulfill his promises to you, to me, to the Israelites. And those who don't believe that, they don't understand the promises of God. So the idea that unbelief could stop God from being faithful is rejected. 
Of course not. Let every man be a liar, but God be true, right? But this brings up another set of objections in the minds of some of these readers. Now, frankly, these next objections are ridiculous, but they are objections and they're dealt with here in the letter all the same. They flow from this idea and you kind of have to follow. So pay close attention here. Take a big sip of coffee and follow because it's a little bit complicated. They flow from the idea that the unrighteousness of people shows the righteousness of God. In other words, if God keeps his promises, as Paul just said he does, even though people are unfaithful, that shows God's glory and grace and righteousness and mercy. And those are good things, okay? In other words, look, Romans 5, 8, wonderful verse. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The faithfulness and righteousness of God is amazing and good. So these objections we're about to deal with come from the idea that our sinfulness gave God the opportunity to show goodness. This is crazy, okay? Let's work through these. Romans 3, 5. This is the next verse. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Then he says, I speak as a man. In other words, an idiot. I speak as an unspiritual man. I speak as somebody who would have this kind of objection. This is nonsense, okay? What they're saying is our unrighteousness gives God the opportunity to, to display his righteousness, right? To demonstrate his righteousness. So in the end, our bad really makes for good. So isn't it unjust for us to be judged? Since really, the bad thing we did made something good happen. I'm going to let you guess what Paul says to this. It's a stupid objection. It's answered quickly. Uh, next verse, Romans 3, 6. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? Now, listen. Certainly not. Let's just say that's an emphatic. Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. Let's just, I'm just paraphrasing. That's the Greek, okay? That's not the Greek. Certainly not is the Greek. For then how will ju God judge the world? Now, why does he say that? For then how will God judge the world? Let, you got to follow this, okay? Follow closely. He's saying that if God is unjust, then of course God could not judge the world. Unjust cannot be a judge. Judges must be just. It's kind of one of the things you're supposed to be. And both the Jewish person and the Gentile are aware that God will judge. Further, if God is unjust, then God is not righteous. That stands to reason. If God would be unjust in judging, then he would not be a righteous God. Keep following. Further, a righteous God would have to punish unrighteousness because to not judge unrighteous would be unrighteous. So if God is not a righteous God, his righteousness could not be demonstrated by our unrighteousness because it would not be righteousness. I don't know if you're following this, but what it's done is it's destroyed the logic of the question. You can't say God's righteousness is shown in our unrighteousness, therefore God shouldn't judge, right? Because if, if God is, in fact, by this statement, means that God would be unrighteous, therefore his righteousness can't be shown in your unrighteousness because his, unrighteous, his would be unrighteousness too, so it all goes away. And I wrote it down for you. That's why you have that thing. Okay, you can follow that later. You can go back and watch this slower if you didn't get that. It's a little complicated, but the point is, by saying then God could not be a judge, that entire argument is easily implied. And what it's saying is, this is a nonsense statement. That we, because our unrighteousness brings good about, right? Because God's glory is displayed, and that's a good thing. So therefore, it's good. It's good. So we shouldn't be judged. 
silliness. The next objection, basically the continuation of this objection, we find in the verses 7 and 8. Lord willing, these are the last two verses we're going to deal with today. And we do have some time left for me to just go off. So here we go. Four, if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? Still the rhetorical question happening. And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. All right. Basically saying the same thing. Basically saying, if I lie sinfully, God's truth is increased because, it's, because God's truth is there to show that my lie is untrue. So therefore, he's glorified by me lying because his truth is, the more, is more there. So why should I be judged? Okay. Um, and then, right, the idea of, hey, listen, every time we sin, God's grace can be shown. God's grace is good. We should sin a lot so that God's grace, which is good, can be more. So really, we're really just doing something good. Okay? <laughs> I hope your children and your friends don't treat you this way. It's so evil and stupid. It's like if I'm mean and hurtful to my parents, but my parents forgive me and they show mercy, they're doing something good by forgiving me, and, it's, and they look good by being forgiving towards me. Therefore, my hurting them was actually a good thing, and they should be happy about it. Try it. Don't try it. Trust me, when I hurt you like this, it's for your good, because when you forgive me, think of how good that is. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous for the obvious reason that it's evil, but also because it's just wrong-headed. If my parents were the kind of people who would forgive me if I hurt them, then they are not increased in their goodness because I actually hurt them and they forgave. The goodness was the same before and after. It was in them. They were already good. They were the kind of people who would do that. They don't need to do it in order to be good or to show their goodness. I did not increase their goodness because they forgave me, nor would I have decreased their goodness if I had not hurt them so they didn't forgive me. Okay? You cannot increase or decrease God's perfection. He's perfect. Your sin can neither lessen it nor make it greater. The fact that God is gracious and faithful is because he is gracious and faithful, glorious and righteous. Period. God doesn't increase in his righteousness because you sinned. Now, you might happen to see it, which is kind of their point. It's displayed. Isn't that good? No. Because he's had to display it because of your sin. Of course, it's good, but not good to your account. That's silly. God doesn't increase in righteousness in that way. You haven't increased the goodness in the universe by sinning so that God shows you grace. Because God's goodness and righteousness and joy and love and peace and hope and all of those things, they're already perfect and they're already infinite. You can't increase them. And if you could increase them by being bad, it wouldn't make you being bad any better. That's, again, nonsense, which is why Paul so quickly just says, please, please. Furthermore, our sin is the cause of Christ's suffering on the cross. To suggest that we should increase it is a wickedness of heart. If you love Jesus and you know what your sin cost him, the idea that you would do more of it, because, of course, he's glorified by the resurrection. So why not do more of it? That's just unloving, evil, immoral, and insane. 
there were people who had accused Paul because he was preaching the gospel. These teachers of the gospel, these preachers of the gospel had shown that God had this amazing grace that even these sinners could be saved. Even these Gentiles could be saved. Even these people who had done horrible, unspeakable things could be saved, like me, because God's grace was big enough. And some people had apparently slandered them by saying, oh, they say grace is this great thing, so you might as well sin a lot. Of course, they'd never said that. They had never said that. It's a silly argument, and it was an evil thing for them to accuse Paul and the other preachers of the gospel of saying that. And he says, their condemnation is just. Their judgment is just. Of course, this entire section is about the fact that God's judgment is just. Kind of finishing on a personal note. These particular people who did this thing, their judgment also is just. God's judgment is just. Those who say vile things like sin more because more good comes of it, they're judged justly. These objections to God's judgment and his wrath and his justice remain, though, for many people. They either reject God altogether or they try to take judgment out of the Bible. The idea of hell, the idea of judgment, the idea of God's wrath, the idea that he's actually going to judge evil and wickedness. They try to take that out. If you want to hear more about them, you can go back to our White Lies series. I talk about progressive Christianity and some of the uh, places that folks go. Uh, and what happens if, when they do that, when they remove from the gospel argument, this whole first section, the, the important section that sets it up, that you're under judgment, that you need God. When you remove that, of course, you pervert the gospel and make it meaningless to yourself. Who cares about the cross? and the resurrection if you never needed it in the first place because you're not under judgment. That's what some people do. Other people just get mad. They don't like the fact that God can judge them. They won't be judged by anyone. Not good. I see two objections. There's probably more. But two of the it's not fair objections. And I want us to study through them this morning. We got a little time. The first one is, it's not fair, I'm righteous. I'm righteous, so it's not fair. I don't deserve judgment. The second one is, it's not fair, I had no choice because I was made badly, so I don't deserve judgment for the bad things I've done. Okay, those are the two that, that I, I think are relatively common. As to the first objection, okay, the first objection being, it's not fair, I'm righteous. I don't deserve judgment. The only way you could believe this is honestly by delusion. You have to be deluded to believe this. I have heard the following statement, and I'm paraphrasing here. How could I deserve eternal punishment? I have not even done anything that I would go to jail for, much less something I should go to hell for. Ah, it sounds pretty good. Like, that's true. Like, first of all, it's probably not true. Okay, most of us have probably done, well, at least I have. Maybe not most of us. I've done a lot of things I go to jail for, okay? Um, this is not being recorded, is it? Oh, live stream. I know a good lawyer. Anyway, um, this objection misses the point on so many levels. Many of the worst sins against God, by the way, are not against human laws in this country. Just so you understand, seven out of the 10 commandments are not illegal ever. And nine out of 10 aren't illegal, at least sometimes, okay? There's only one out of the 10 commandments that's almost always illegal, that's stealing. The rest of them, even do not murder, 
which you've probably seen a lot in the news about that lately when it comes to unborn children, can be legal in this country. There's a number of things that are legal. Almost all of the Ten Commandments you can do and not have them be illegal. I'm just using that as an example. Okay, Of the things that God wants from you, most of them are not illegal. So to say, well, I haven't broken any laws they could send me to jail for. Therefore, God has no right to judge me. As if God's like, that's right. Washington Code didn't say it was wrong. You're in, buddy. There you go. That's not how he looks at it. That's not how he looks at it. You are to keep God's commandments and his law because you are his. You are to worship him and to love him and to do what he created you to do, to fulfill your arite, as we talked about recently, your purpose. That's what you're to do. Anytime you don't do that, you are sinful against the holy God. Period. Period. And it's it, worse than that. The idea, the, the idea that you would say that God has no right to judge you, that itself is a pretty awful sin. Because you are imputing that you know more than God, that you are essentially above God. And that itself is a sin that separates you from God. Every wicked thought, every time you fail to honor God, or even fail to honor your parents or a friend, Every lie, every outburst of unrighteous anger, every gossipy secret, every lustful thought, every one of those things. The list is long, and most of us can check most of the boxes. There is no one who is righteous before God, and God must judge unrighteousness if he is in fact righteous, and he is. The Jews, they couldn't stand on ceremony or circumcision or sacrifices at the temple. They were guilty before God. The Gentiles could not claim ignorance. Or the legality, you know, under Roman law, I'm allowed to do this. Or the legality of their behavior. Or the allegation that some people make that they're probably better than their neighbor. Which probably isn't true either. That they've done more and worse things than me. Mm, maybe. There's no hiding from the judgment of God. This is the point. There is no personal idea of righteousness that will save you. Only Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection can save you. That's it. Job, I don't know if you remember good old Job from the book of Job. He was suffering, going through a lot. He didn't like it. There was kind of some it's not fair thoughts, I think. And he starts going through and listing off all of his personal righteousness. All the things that he did to honor God. Kind of like, I'm this good guy. Well, God decides to have a chat with him. Job 38, 1 through 4. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. It means gird up your loins. Okay? That's what he's saying. Buck up, buddy. Prepare yourself because you're going to answer some questions. You've had a lot to say. I'm going to say a few things. You don't want to be in that conversation with God. Trust me, been there, done that. You always lose, okay? You always lose. This is what God says. Now, pray yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then it just goes through this list. And it's like, you know how this is done? You know how this is done? Can you do this? Can you do that? Mine is always like, can you make a tree? Just a tree. I'm not even talking about like a rabbit. Just do the tree thing, and I'll start to listen to what you have to say. But you can't. You can't, because only God knows those things. Only God can do those things. 
Isaiah 55, 7 through 9. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Because his thoughts are wrong. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Thank God they're not. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Here's the deal for those who think they don't need Jesus, because really they're not that bad, and it would be unfair for him to judge you. First of all, you have a terrible memory. You have done things that are that bad. The scripture is clear about it, and I know people. This whole, like, people are basically good. I'm like, what people? Right? Is that why everyone's moving to these other states? They're like, people are probably basically good there. They're not. Okay? I'm not. I know. I've read my mail. And so I'm pretty sure what your mail says. Okay? They're not. That's why we need Jesus. Watch yourself if you think you're righteous and you don't deserve judgment. Because God has been clear that you do deserve judgment. And that you are not righteous. And that your only hope is Jesus Christ. Be very wary of being righteous in your own eyes. Whether that's an unbeliever thinking they don't need Jesus or whether that's a believer thinking somehow they've started to earn their way instead of having the grace of God. Because without the saving grace of Jesus, you're not righteous in God's eyes. Whether you could go to jail or not. Okay? I'm going to read you. I'm just going to shotgun some verses here. 1 John 1.8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 21, 2, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Isaiah 50, 20 through 21, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Proverbs 3, 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. And Proverbs 26, 12, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. You want to know if you're wondering if you might be wise in your own eyes? Do you want to know how you can test that? I'll tell you. If you disagree with the Bible, you're wise in your own eyes. If there are things in here that you're like, no, I'm not, I don't, I'm not really into that. You're wise in your own eyes. And all of these verses apply to you. And all of us have been there. That's why we need Jesus. If you disagree with Scripture, this is, this is really easy and really clear, and you can take it to the bank. If you disagree with Scripture, you are wrong. Okay? You're not allowed to tell people they're wrong. Yes, I am. You're wrong. If you disagree with Scripture. I'm not saying if you disagree with me. If you disagree with me, you're probably wrong. If you disagree with Scripture, you're definitely wrong. Okay? Right, honey? No. No. <laughs> If you disagree with her, you're definitely wrong also, okay? <laughs> if you disagree with Scripture, you're wrong. Because the Scripture is never wrong. If you disagree with the Bible, it's, it's this simple. You think you know more than God. This is God's Word. No, he doesn't really mean that. What he's trying to say is, and if we look at it historically, maybe we could see how... No. No. They're laughing over there because that's what Lindsay's daughter does all the time. She's like this big. She goes, no, no. 
we were doing child dedications the other week and she's up here. I'm like, do you guys, we're going to dedicate this, you know, you're going to dedicate to the Lord. And she's like, no, no, up here. So I don't know. You guys will need to pray extra for her. This is what Job said after God showed Job how little he knew. This is uh, chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. If you want to read that book, it's amazing. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful to me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's where we come to when we have thought we were right in our own eyes and God shows us the truth. When we think we're doing pretty good, after all, probably better than that one or this one, and God shows us the truth, we abhor ourselves and repent in dust and ashes. If you've been wise in your own eyes, repent, turn to the Lord, because here's the awesome thing, he forgives. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. We know this. We know this. If your conscience doesn't happen to bother you about something you're doing, but the scripture commands you not to do it, your conscience is wrong, not the scriptures. Your conscience has been seared. You hear that argument sometimes too. I, my, conscience, my conscience is clear. I don't care if your conscience is clear. Your conscience is broken. Okay? You know it's broken if it goes against the scripture. You know you're right in your own eyes if it goes against the scripture. Oh, I don't feel bad about doing it. Well, great. That just means you've done an awful lot and your conscience has been seared about it. That's a problem that you don't feel that way about it. But I don't care how you feel. I care what the scripture says. I do care how you feel. I just don't care how you feel about this. This is the scripture. You are not the final authority on what is right. Gosh, if we could get this to the, this culture in the world. You are not the final authority on what is right. It doesn't matter what you think if it's not the truth. The truth matters and the truth is in the scripture, period. And so, by the way, is a source of all life and joy and peace and fulfillment, God, our Savior and friend, Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, the second person of the Trinity. Now, quickly, the other person who blames God is the person who blames God because God allowed them to be born into this sinful world and they had a sinful heart and they were going to sin anyway and do, you know, so how is God? It's not fair. How is he going to judge them when they were going to be sinful anyway? Um, what more do you want God to do for you? God has never made you sin. And you know this. Be honest with yourself. You have chosen continuously to do what you knew you ought not to do. You are not a robot. Okay? When you did those things, you know, people say the devil made me do it. Here people are saying God made me do it. He made me, he made me in this way so that my heart is way. Listen, you've sinned because you wanted to sin. Each man is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. That's what happens. By your own evil desires. God didn't give you evil desires. God gave you life. He made you in his image and likeness. Yeah, the world was broken, but you chose to sin. And what more do you want him to do? He sacrificed himself. He came to the world to live and suffer just like you, worse than you, and to die for you. He rose from the dead, defeating sin, hell, and death. What else do you want him to do? He offers you salvation for free. Salvation that he paid for. You didn't pay for it. He took on the judgment that you deserve, whether you think you deserve it or not. 
This is what C.S. Lewis says. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell or judgment is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. Do not be a person who asks God to leave you alone. At the end of the day, if you say, I'm not under the judgment of God, it does not change the fact that you're not under the judgment of God. If I get done, this one won't be one of my clients, but let's just assume some other worst lawyer's client, okay? And they get convicted, okay, of a, of a crime. I'm kidding. I, yeah. They get convicted of a crime, and they go, I'm not guilty. There's still, the cuffs are still going on. They're still going back to the jail cell. It doesn't matter what they say. It matters what's happened, okay? You cannot get out of it that way. And if you insist upon the idea that God is unfair, when you know nothing compared to him, when as the heavens are higher than the earth, his thoughts are higher than your thoughts. But you say he's not fair, but you say you know more than him, and you can't even make a tree. <laughs> do not be a person who asks God to leave you alone, because that is what he will do. That is judgment. What do you think hell is? Separation from God. You cannot be in the presence of God and say he's not fair and that you're smarter than him. He can't have you in his presence if that's how you are. Only when your knee bows and your tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's it. That's who gets to be there. He loves you. I love you. Please give up your excuses and your self-righteousness and experience his love and his peace and his hope and faith and joy. Let's pray.